coming to you from Star Studios in Denton, Texas. I'm Tom Collins Signs in Limerick, Ireland. This is Coffee with a Sign Painter, a podcast hosted by sign painter Sean Starr and Tom Collins. This groovy soundtrack was written and performed by Fergal Lawler of the Cranberries. Thanks, Fergal. Their 
facade, but um, as things grew and marketing grew and advertising grew, uh, a lot of the elements that were originally done by uh, either a calligrapher or a sign painter were then incorporated into large-scale advertising. So talk a bit more about that as far as how, you know, sign painting leads into the digital world, especially, you know, now, I mean, your, your competition, I would, I would imagine, from sign painting to, you know, digital signs, uh, neon signs, that sort of thing. So, you know, from, from your standpoint, you know, where, where do you meet the digital world? Yeah, there, there's a lot of us who've um, kind of reached a place where we're straddling the fence, uh, where we're incorporating uh, the hand-rendered elements and the hand-painted elements, but to make it practical for the client, uh, we've devised different ways to get that into the computer so that we can create vectored versions of that artwork that can then be used across all platforms. So. Um, when, when I first started in the trade, it was just at the point uh, a couple of years after where computers were starting to get um, utilized by sign shops that were typically just doing sign painting prior to that. So there was a learning curve as that became more and more the norm, uh, but it also kind of almost was the kiss of death for sign painting because it overtook the industry and became something that everyone wanted, you know, computer done. That was like a really hot thing for everybody. Um, and so paintwork got shoved to the side. And for those of us that were very passionate about it, it was like, it was a horrible period. <laughs> so uh, when we saw opportunity to focus solely on that, um, we just went for it and we starved for several years. And, uh, but we dug our heels in, and it's uh, now we're at a point where that's all we do. So let's take a step back and, and, and take a look at your overall process. You know, when when you look at branding from uh, a, a, a digital designer, you know they may go into a sketchbook, they may uh, go straight to Illustrator to show those proofs to the client. How, how does it work for you? Do, you? do you go through sketches? Do you, you know, uh, is, there, is there a proof stage before you do the final painting? Yeah, for definitely, um, before we do any painting, we provide the client with a to-scale mock-up so they can see full context of what they're getting. And that also has the benefit of taking the client out of the mix so that you can just work. <laughs> You don't have to answer any additional questions at that point, hopefully. Um, but typically, somebody designing on the computer may provide a client with, let's say, a dozen different versions of a logo mark, for instance. Um, because what we're doing is so time-intensive by hand, um, we, don't, we don't typically do that. Uh, so our process is a little different in that um, there, there, there's a certain level of trust that has to be established for a client to feel comfortable with you presenting maybe one or two ideas as opposed to six or eight or a dozen. Um, so we try to refine the concept as much as we can with the client before we start the process at all to determine what it is they're really about. Um, one of the 
the things that I'm really focused on is finding out what the authenticity of their brand is. Not necessarily what they want it to be, but what it truly is so that uh, when the process starts and the designing uh, is, is underway, I'm really immersed in their culture so that when I present that artwork to them, we can have a discussion about that authenticity more than, you know, well, I kind of like this vintage look or I kind of like this. It's like, well, those, are, those elements uh, can be important, but if that's the driving force behind their branding, it can sometimes do them harm. So how did you get started? Were you an apprentice first, or just to go over your, your basic beginnings? Uh, my, my dad, who was born and raised here in Cleveland, um, he moved our family uh, when I was about eight years old down to San Antonio, Texas. And uh, he wanted to kind of reboot. So he started a, a small company called Star Custom Paint. And, uh, and it, at the beginning we were doing hot rods and lettering on cars and pinstriping and all this kind of custom paint stuff and um, as, as that grew we incorporated more and more hand lettering and signage for clients. Uh, so I spent the first three years working for him doing nothing but like the worst grunt work you could imagine. Uh, we wasn't allowed to touch paint for three years. So it was sweeping floors and sure. being a gopher and running errands and doing that kind of nonsense. And uh, but that's a you know talking to uh, different people who've come up in the trade. It's, it's a really important step because at the time you're like this sucks. Why am I having to do all this? But uh, over time, looking back on it, you can see that being around all of the different stages of the processes without being able to get involved in them. Uh, gave you the foundation that you needed so that when you were let to do the next step, you already knew what it was and you were so eager to do it that like you were on it. Whereas if, if all of that was open to you at the beginning, you'd do a lot of it half-assed because you're just trying to, you know, get everything done. Sure. And, you know, looking at uh, at least how I started, you know, I, I didn't go to school for design or development, you know, I, I, I taught myself, so there's, there's, you've, you've got the two sides of, of that argument, you know, whether or not going to art school is the way to go, going to, or just, you know, learning as you go, or teaching yourself. What, what do you see? I mean, obviously you, you had the uh, ability and the fortune to, you know, learn from your family, learn from your dad. So is that how you see a lot of sign painters going, going that route, or are they going to get formal education on, on that sort of thing? Well, we have seen in the last few years uh, more designers with a design education, design background, wanting to get involved. So that is uh, something new. Um, there, there's uh, one sign painting trade school left that's functioning in, in LA. There's a guy named Doc Guthrie who's featured in the sign painters movie. Um, they talked somewhat about that. Um, but unless you have the ability to go do that, there's really no way to get educated on the trade. Um, myself, I'm high school dropout, so to me it's funny whenever I do these things because I'm talking to 
people that went to school typically. Um, I haven't talked to very many in your position, for instance, that kind of self-taught and, and learned as they went. Um, so it's, uh, I don't think there's any right or wrong way to get there. Um, it's, you know, it's probably more painful to do what you and I have done because, you know, you're kind of bumping against, you know, the wall on occasion, um, going through the process to get to a point where you can do it professionally, uh, that maybe schooling would have, you know, steered me around, I don't know, but, um, it, with our trade, um, there's so much detail that if you're not able to get an apprenticeship and you're trying to maybe learn by osmosis through YouTube or something like that, uh, there's going to be some really huge gaps in knowledge. So you typically, and it's been the case for hundreds of years, you would apprentice under somebody, they would teach you all the different stages so that when you were ready, you could go out and make a living on your own. So is, is that something you're actively doing, you know, bringing on apprentices to continue that, that, that trade? Yeah, we get emails about that. We've, we've had emails from as far away as uh, Australia and Scotland of people offering to come and apprentice with us, which is uh, flattering, um, but obviously we can't do that, you know, sensibly. Uh, we do have, uh, there's a gentleman in our town, uh, his name's Cole Bridges, and um, he's been working with us for four years now as an apprentice. And he's just now, at this stage, able to, uh, you know, when we get busy, I'll hand off a, a lead or a client to him, and he can go through all the steps um, of getting that job, going and executing it, getting paid, all of that. But it's taken four years for him to be able to do that. He's He's got a natural knack for some of it, so. Yeah, and it definitely seems like, you know, it's uh, it's a lot harder to get into the sign painting and really start, you know, doing that and working with clients right away because that's permanent. That's, that's going to be up there for a while, so. Um, as Sean mentioned, this is a, uh, an open conversation, so if there's anyone in the audience that has a, has a question, you can shout it or walk up to the stage and I'll hand you the mic. But feel free to do that. Um, as far as an apprenticeship, you know, what, what, what does an apprentice normally have to go through in those first few years? A lot of hazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we try to not be total turds about it, but, you know, I, I've been doing it a long time, so things like, you know, carrying ladders and heavy equipment, I don't like to do that as much, so at the very least, I like having help doing that, and so in the early stages, it's a lot of that kind of practical help, getting things set up, and then having a second set of hands to get patterns transferred on the wall, and over time, uh, as you see certain skills developing, uh, you can, it's not always easy to do, but you can back yourself up and just let them run with it and maybe go get a, you know, coffee or something and let them work on that, even though you know you might have to correct some of it. You, you kind of let them out, you know, a little bit further and further until they can accomplish certain stages on their own. So. All right, I am having a hard time seeing. 
because uh, of the light. So again, if there's any questions, feel free to ask. Yeah, I've got one. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned trying to learn some of these skills through you know YouTube, and not obviously not being the best way to do it. Right. Do you know of any resources, books, whatever that somebody who I hope it doesn't come across badly like just wants to dabble in it? But like, is there anything I can go out and buy at least learn a little bit like? Yeah, sure. So, uh, just in case everyone heard, uh, Jeffrey was asking uh, if there's any resources, like easy resources, maybe not YouTube, but something if he just wants to dabble, not necessarily get full into it just yet. Yeah, that's a, and that's a good question that we get asked a lot, actually. Um, I don't think it's wrong to just like what you're saying, want to dabble. I don't. I don't look at that in a snobby way and be like, oh, you're not committed or anything. There's a lot of people that just want to kind of get a feel for how it works, and I think that's cool. It's part of what will keep the trade alive. Um, as far as resources, that's something that's starting to change. Up until maybe a year ago, your only option would either be to go to LA Trade Tech and study under DACA 3, but that's like a six-month commitment. you got to live in LA. Um, there is some things on YouTube that may help you understand some of the processes, but so much of uh, the craft of sign painting is muscle memory. Um, that, uh, for instance, for many, many years, one of the first things that you would uh, be asked to do would be a series of strokes. And the sole purpose of that is, is not only control of the brush, but it's to establish the muscle memory. There's uh, six, I believe, different strokes, angles, lines, that establish every letter in the, in the English alphabet for a block letter, for instance. So um, some of those steps are available. You got to kind of hunt for them online. Some of the forums, people have uh, printed um, like old printouts from trade schools and stuff where you can see the stroke patterns, and that's a great place to start. Uh, there's a sign painter, um, he's pretty well known, uh, Mike Meyer. He's in Mazeppa, Minnesota. Um, and he's been doing workshops all over the world for the last year. Um, and so you can look him up and see if maybe you can catch a workshop that's going to be in an area that's actually feasible to go to, and that'll help. Uh, he, one of the main things he focuses on is the stroke patterns, so at least you'll get the information that you could go and utilize at home, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, as far as um, the anything on, on video, YouTube, that kind of stuff, it, it is good for people, I think, to see the different stages, but uh, without the practice, it's kind of like um, I've compared it to like if you want to learn guitar, like you can watch somebody playing guitar on YouTube all day long and they can even show you slow motion the chord changes, but uh, if you don't sit down at home and practice and practice and practice, you're not going to be Jimi Hendrix, so, you know, just jumping in and doing it. And I think that's cool. I think you should. Come on. There's got to be more. Is there another question? Sign 
That, that's a good question too, and I, I, I think what you'll find if you look online at different sign painters' uh, websites, um, out of pure survival, a lot of us have diversified so much over the years that we do a lot of different things. There are a few people um, that may just decide to focus on one aspect of the trade, and that's how it used to be when there was a lot more people doing it. Out of necessity, you'd say, well, I'm just gonna focus on this. And the guy next to me is doing walls and I'm gonna do gold leaf on glass, for instance. Um, so, aside from a few different branches, which one of them would be what, what we refer to as window splashes, which would be like sales this weekend that you see on storefront windows, uh, pizza by the slice, that kind of stuff. Um, there's the, the people that do that typically just focus on that, uh, and they've got a really good business doing that because it's repeat work. And so once you get your clients established, you're just doing that over and over. But for instance, with us, aside from the commonality that uh, we're in a period right now where everyone's feeling nostalgic, so everybody wants something to look vintage, aside from that vintage theme, we do everything from large-scale uh, walls, uh, we'll do murals, uh, we do a lot of gold leaf on glass because there's not that many people left that know that process. Uh, with my background with hot rods and motorcycles, we do a lot of that kind of work. Um, and we kind of just jump around. It's, you know, some work is seasonal, um, and other work, it just depends on trends. So, for instance, when the uh, film Sign Painters came out, there was a lot of requests for vintage-looking work on walls and bricks, brick walls, and we've done a lot of that. Um, but, you know, we see a trend throughout the year. There's different times where we get a lot of calls for gold leaf on glass, so just depends. And the more you information you gather over the years and techniques that you develop, the more you're able to fill in gaps when the market gets slow. That help? Yeah. Okay. So uh, you, you mentioned, I think it was Mike, Mike Myers, so, um, and you also talked about uh, the Sign Painter movie. Um, talk a bit about just overall, like where where you would suggest people look into for inspiration. So whether that is you know the the movie or specific uh, painters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the the sign painter movie is a great place to start because they did a really cool job of um, that. Not only did they want to tell the story of the transition from paint to digital to kind of back to paint, but they also have a really diverse group of people that are doing a lot of different types of work on there. So that's a good place to start. There's about 25 of us on there that you can you know, look up online and take a look at their work. Um, and as far as uh, the inspiration for the design aspects of it, um, a lot of old advertising has been a inspiration for sign painters decade after decade. Um, and we had mentioned this yesterday in the workshop, uh, sign painters have always had what's called a morgue file. And what that is, is 
It's a, basically a scrapbook of old magazine ads. Maybe you take a photo of some old fading sign that really I saw someone, you know, utilize that somehow someday. And now uh, many of us have transferred that over to a digital version. So for instance, when uh, we hit a slow spot or just feel like doing it, um, I'll take uh, an old photo, I'll take an old magazine ad, I've got a lot of old books, some on sign painting, just some on design in general. Speedball books are awesome. Um, a lot of the uh, stroke patterns are covered in speedball books too, which you can find on eBay for 15, 20 bucks. And they've got a lot of um, type styles that you can work on from those. Um, so when, when I've got downtime, what I'll typically do is, you know, maybe I'll draw a border element or I'll work on a, a type style that I've been working on for six months. Um, I don't have the technical savvy to turn those into fonts, but I still have the vectored artwork in Illustrator from, you know, hand sketch to Illustrator that uh, certain jobs, if it's the right vibe, I'll be able to take that and spell out words and create my design off those. And that helps uh, keep historical accuracy, which for me, I'm very OCD. So <laughs> that's something I've always been a stickler for is making sure stuff's period correct. So for instance, if uh, let's say a bagel shop's moving into a building that was built in the 20s, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, focused on making sure that whatever type styles I use are typical to the period. And I'm sure there's there's someone here at WMC Pets that could help you with that font. Okay. <laughs> so, for sure. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Um, if you do work that is, you know, for a client, it's kind of a multi-question. If you had work that you're giving to a client that's going to then scan it in, do you do, will you give them the scan? Will you do the vector transfer? If you do the vector transfer, do you spend the time cleaning up the vector work so it's, you know, Going after scanning, you're going to do it a trace. You're going to get a lot of after effects. Are you putting right. that all up, or are you letting the client that here's your here's the my, my original drawing scanned in? You deal with it. That's a that's a good question, and it, the answer uh, raises it raises two answers to the question. <laughs> uh, one is yes, I give it to them locked and loaded, and mainly again I'm OCD, so it's like I don't want someone to watch my design or to take the liberty to change things. So um, I also issue branding guidelines for the client when we're doing branding, where I'll give them parameters of please don't change this stuff, you know? Um, but the other side of that, and this is becoming a growing issue, uh, is there are uh, several ad agencies that have done this to some other sign painters. Um, where they've had them paint a few elements for a few hundred dollars, for instance, and then they scan them in, they take them, and then they build someone's branding off of it. And so there's an ethical fine line there that none of us have really figured out how to make sure that we're getting compensated for something like that because uh, uh, there, I, I host a podcast called Coffee with a Sign Painter, and there, there's a lot of questions that we address on there as well. Um, but the co-host is in Limerick, Ireland, Tom, Tom Collins. 
And uh, there's an old-time sign painter out there that's been his biggest inspiration for years. And I can't pronounce his name, so I won't try. But um, somebody recently took his work, uh, and again, it was just a little thing that he did, and then built a whole poster and ad campaign based off his artwork. Um, and that's left him very frustrated because he feels like he's being used a little bit. So um, I don't know what the solution to that is, but the minute that you're handing over something that's completely hand-rendered like that, you do expose yourself to the risk that it could either be used in a way that you didn't intend, or that um, you're kind of cutting yourself out of the loop of the normal chain of compensation, which, you know, over the years, some of us have uh, educated ourselves, like with the, uh, the graphic design guidelines books and stuff, to see how things are structured pay-wise. Uh, so that's a problem we haven't fixed yet. I don't know. How much time do you spend then doing um, vector cleanup? I mean, you spend quite a bit of hours. It can be really time consuming, as you probably right. you know, know. Um, if it's a really detailed piece that's maybe something very Victorian looking that's got a lot of scroll work, yeah, it can be a really sizable investment in time. So um, usually, Something like that, you know, I know going in on the front end what my time commitment's going to be and I can ask for that money and sometimes get it, sometimes not, but um, that, that's definitely <clears throat> a time hog, as you probably know. I bring it up only because when you're getting into it, I think as designers, and I might be speaking for myself, you spend time on it and everybody expects things so fast and you realize this is a really tedious process, and obviously, as you know, you're doing it by hand, but you've been doing it in digital vector standpoint. And, you know, I know I feel like sometimes I want to rush, and you, know, you want to do that confirmation that, yes, it's, it's tedious and time-consuming, and it takes time, you can't rush through that. Yeah, and, and we have to balance, too, um, the, the usage and the pay that goes along with it. So there are times where, I'll pencil sketch out the whole concept, and I'm not getting paid for a full branding of, of the project. I'm just getting maybe paid for signing the window. <clears throat> so that's when we start looking at, I want to use the term shortcuts, but I suppose that's what it is, where we'll, we'll look and say, okay, there's already a, a font that someone has done that is really close to this, and I can either spend 10 minutes dropping in and, and adjusting the font the way I want it, or I can spend 10 hours hand drawing, scanning it in, cleaning up all the nodes, making sure it's tight and rock solid. So there's a, uh, we have to make judgment calls on a daily basis of what's, um, what's reasonable and what am I getting paid for versus, you know, the other. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, we can't really see up here, so just go ahead and shout out. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, when you talk about apprenticeship, apprenticeship and you know, traineeship here, that you know, you were learning the process of actually painting. Was there any specific focus on like typography, or did you, did you have like a background actually studying the watercolor, or did that sort of just come naturally to you yeah, we were really, uh, when my dad decided to switch directions, um, we were very poor. So it was pure survival. 
So, for instance, one of the earliest uh, things that I did um, is he had gotten uh, this Chevrolet dealership to allow us to custom paint all of these Camaros. And I was tasked with, you need to figure out a way to write the word Camaro on the door, you know, four inches tall or whatever, and, and it has to look great. So um, that started the whole process um, of trying to figure that out, talking to some old-timer guys in the area that had done it for years, just to figure out how to make that word consistently on each door of these cars, you know, all look the same. Um, and so I, I think um, because sign painting uh, has always been a trade, kind of like plumber, um, I, I think that the approach was so different uh, where, you, you know, you're literally just hustling to try and get something done, get a check to pay your electric bill. Um, as opposed to, we never had the luxury to like study much of anything. It was just, we've got this project, we don't really have a clue how to make this look the way they're asking for, how do we figure that out? And so then you might stay up till two in the morning experimenting, trying to figure out how to do that, uh, as opposed to, you know, having the ability to like look through lettering books. All of that for me came many years later. Uh, where I had the ability, you know, working as a designer in a sign company, I was able to like really take my time and take free time and start looking at letter structure and layout and that kind of stuff versus just being, you know, trial by fire of this needs to happen so you can buy groceries. And then second, on that sort of licensing and money talk, you know, it made me think, like, like sometimes I'll find an image in an old rover book or something, you know, like a wacky advertising guy, and I'll, I might list it and use it on something. Like, and I feel fairly safe doing that because, like, you know, rover books are, like, copyright free. But when you're just, like, searching junk stores or old stuff for inspiration, like, do you feel like there's a kind of safe way to go about it? That, that you feel kind of like, okay, cool, like, this, this yeah. kind of uses 1895 Yeah, and that's obviously more of a legal question yeah. than anything. Yeah. I have no clue on the legal, but there's also the ethical side of it. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, that's been the nature of art and commercial art since the beginning is, I mean, we all steal from each other. Yeah. Come on, give me a break. Um, so, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's a tough one because, um, especially when you start digging back into the old stuff, um, I, I, my viewpoint, and everyone, you know, determines on their own, but my viewpoint is there are things that I come across that are inspirational that I'm like, that's awesome, I'd love to use this as the inspiration for this design, versus what we've all seen, which is, you know, somebody will scan something in, vectorize it, and then they're selling it on, you know, one of the vector sites or whatever. Um, I think there's a balance between the two, you know? And, and, we, and I think everyone's done it, where we've, we've seen something in our book where, like, that would scan pretty clean, and I could kind of adapt it a little bit and make that part of my order or whatever, and I don't think that's a bad thing. 
Um, but I, what I do think happens is it can make designers lazy. Uh, and that's, that is a bad thing uh, because then you're regurgitating a bunch of stuff as opposed to creating something new. So one of the things that we always encourage when we do the workshops is for people to actually break out a pencil and paper because there's so many designers that have only ever used a mouse and maybe just, you know, experimented with drawing a little bit of typeface or something. But there's something I think different that occurs creatively in our brain when we're actually putting pencil to paper. So I think it's an important skill, even if the type of work you're doing, let's say you're, you're only gonna design websites, I think the process of drawing ideas out and uh, pushing a pencil across paper, I think creatively really uh, helps us to work more creatively, and so I always encourage people to do that. As far as the, the, the typefaces, um, as you know, there's tens of thousands of fonts out there now, and I've hit or miss found quite a few that I'm like, that, that could work in a historical context. Uh, letterhead fonts, which you're probably familiar with, they've done an awesome job of most of the guys that, and they're kind of in the same position I am, is they, they've got the artwork, but they don't know how to make it function. So what Letterhead Fonts has done is they've taken a lot of sign painters' files and turned them into active fonts and then sold them on behalf of the designer. Um, most of the typefaces that we use, um, we've kind of got this like underground little thing going, me and some other sign painters, where we've got those, uh, uh, those files in vector format that we've worked on, some of them for years, and then they'll start with a brush, they'll get scanned in, they'll get cleaned up and all that, and so we've done these vector swaps for years where it's like, hey, I've got this really cool thing dialed in, I'll give it to you, but what do you got? So, you know, but again, I think it's important um, to break free from just, I can download this and use it, and we do it too, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't, but it, it's selectively like addressing the other question that if we're not getting paid to do a fully intensive design, then I can't justify creating something completely new for a client. Although, although sometimes I do, especially uh, like if we're working on a tattoo shop project because I love the variables with that, a lot of times I'll just let myself take the time that it's not reasonable to do because I want to see like it all come to life, so. Yeah. yeah. How would you describe the benefit of like hand sign painting versus a vinyl print to a client? Um, I think the largest benefit is the fact that the public engages with it on a very different level than, you know, vinyl is very, as you know, very crisp, very clean, perfect. Um, and people walk past it all day, every day. Uh, but hand-painted and the small imperfections and the brush strokes, uh, I think we're so inundated with digital. Um, and you know, we're all on our phones constantly and it, everything is digital, 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 that when someone actually sees something that's been rendered by hand, uh, they engage with it differently. And that, that's got a huge value. Uh, 
the client doesn't necessarily always understand that. And not all clients do. But the ones that do uh, are very loyal clients of ours that use us year after year on different things because they know that's how they want to represent themselves and they also know that the public does engage with it. I'm sorry? Did you consider yourself an artist before you were a scientist? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think probably everyone in this room, you know, that's probably was the, the uh, fuel to, um, you know, build a career around something where I could work creatively. You know, I, I don't know that um, it, it would have been very feasible to try and, you know, feed myself by creating original artwork for a living, but, um, you know, I think uh, doing any kind of commercial design or artwork uh, affords all of us the ability to work creatively to a large degree and still be able to make a living and uh, be able to pursue the artistic things that we're really the most passionate about on, on the side as opposed to if we're working in a factory somewhere or in a warehouse, you know, it's not really the same as being able to work creatively every day. But, what's the, what's yeah. the highest height that you have in the I am not a big fan of heights, so <laughs> I go up to about uh, 30 feet and that's my cutoff. <laughs> so uh, we just did a project in our town uh, where we were on the lifts that we were, the top of the sign was probably about 32 feet. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really comfortable going higher than that. We get calls occasionally for odd jobs like, can you paint our town's logo on our water tower? And things like that. And I'm just, uh, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> that's a vital so. project. What's that? That's a vital project. Yeah, well, a lot of that stuff you, you can only be done in paint, but there's there's a few uh, companies that they travel guys all over the country to just do that because it also requires special rigging and that kind of stuff. There's there's some um, guys in New York City that were also in the film. Uh, Sky High Minerals is their one company, and they do these fantastic detailed murals really high up on the sides of buildings in New York. Um, but yeah, that's a whole different thing that I don't want to do. And, and that brings up something interesting too that um, I think one of the misconceptions about our trade is that uh, we're sitting in some air-conditioned corner at an easel all day or something. But a lot of what we do is very physical work. Uh, you know, even, you know, if we were to paint something where that screen is right there, you still have to set up ladders and scaffolding planks and all of the other equipment that goes with it. And, you know, just that alone is, is very physical, demanding work because we're using really heavy duty solid ladders that weigh a lot so that we can stand there and work all day. And you add to that, you know, maybe you're getting beat on by the sun or starting to rain off and on. You know, these are all things that are very physically taxing as opposed to, um, you know, if we were just sitting in our studio in the corner, which we get to do maybe couple, once every couple months, work on something detailed in the corner, but that's not typical.
but how do you, he had to do a sign like you have behind you. Mm -hmm. And so you do the layout, you get it approved, sketched at, I'm sure they get a desk size. Okay. How are you doing the transfer? Choose, are you, are you, is there like a projection transfer? Or are you just then, you know, you doing a grid transfer to actually do it to scale? That specifically is what we dealt with in the workshop yesterday morning, okay. is we went through the whole stages of, um, we started with having everyone sketch their initials and some design elements about the size of the palm of your hand. Right. And then it's how do you get that bigger right. and accurate. Right. So for instance, uh, you know, if you're painting a mural and you do the grid process, which would be, you know, taking your artwork typically like one inch equals one square foot and then you draw a grid over it and then you try to reproduce that large scale. If you're doing a mural, like a nature scene, there's a lot of room for error from the original to the finish that no one will ever notice because you've got organic shapes and shading and all of that. Where it gets tricky is when you start dealing with typography because we see it so much, we know when it's wrong. And one of the examples that we showed was the Coca-Cola logo. People that have nothing to do with designer advertising, they know what that logo looks like. And if it's not dead on, if the proportions aren't right, if the thicknesses aren't right, they might not even know why it doesn't look right, but they're gonna look at it and say, it doesn't look quite right. So when you get to the point where you're representing a client's branding, Obviously, Coca-Cola would be the extreme, but even on a smaller scale, if it's a restaurant, you're painting the logo in the window, and that same logo's on their menus and in their advertising, if it's not all matching, people are gonna know. So, the process that uh, we use, um, you could use a projector, you could also use a printer, um, but it's basically taking that artwork, making sure it's tight and clean, and then scaling it up, and then transferring that to paper. And then that paper is used to transfer the pattern, which is the same process they did the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with, uh, is basically drawing bubbled outlines of the figures, and then they would go up and uh, transfer that with graphite, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's a whole process um, to dig into, and you can probably find some resources on that online for, it, the, the term is pounce pattern. So if you look that up, it might give you some insight on how we do that. something unique there that was still in harmony with their Dallas store. Um, so that's probably half of our clientele. The other half is people that call that, um, you know, maybe it's a, a storefront that wants the name in the window and 
we, you know, those typically they'll call us once and unless that window gets broken, you know, they're good. Uh, so it, it's probably half and half. All right, we have time for one more question. Yeah. What do you find is uh, the biggest gap in understanding when someone tries to hire you for a gig? I think it's the um, time investment on our end. Uh, to, to explain that is we've got, uh, let, let's say they come to us and say, we're opening up a new coffee shop and we want you to design something for the front window. Not only do I have the time to create the design to factor in, but then depending on the type of artwork we've got to make to scale patterns. So that can be a day or two in the studio alone, just making those patterns so everything looks correct. And then on, from there, it's the execution. So let's say a gold leaf on glass project, you know, that can take 10 times the amount of time that just painting it would take, depending on the design. Versus, uh, and this is what we contend with all the time, somebody calls and says, I want the name of our business, you guys pick whatever font you want, but I want it in our window in white cut vinyl. That, that can take a guy doing that, you know, an hour to set it up, an hour to cut it. He shows up and gets it stuck on the window in 30 minutes. So we contend with that on the pricing side of some clients having the perception that this is just something you knock out, you're done. Versus um, kind of having to kindly educate them that, okay, this is, you know, I'm going to have a day in designing this and getting it ready, and then a, maybe a day to create the pattern, and then a day on site to execute it. So on my side as a businessman, I've got to look at, okay, what, what kind of income do I have to generate on a daily basis, and then that's times three now. So um, it's a fine line because of perceptions, because of computerization. All right, uh, Sean, you can talk about sign painting for days, and uh, I know there's been a lot of questions, so thank you for that. You're going to be doing a meet and greet, 20 minutes uh, at 1.35, so if you've got any other questions for Sean, feel free to meet him. You'll be in the Ohio Theater Lobby. Um, yeah, go ahead and close this up. Thanks for coming, and thanks for coming out early, because... Uh, my body certainly didn't want to get up, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate all the support and I really appreciate um, the folks at Go Media for reaching out to us and bringing us up here, my wife and I, and allowing us to participate in this and then we've had a great experience here in Cleveland, so thanks. Okay, have cats. This is the part of the show where we play a song from the Arhuli archive, so pay attention. You can get these tunes from the legendary Arhuli records at arhuli.com. Now sit back, open up some one shot, crank up the volume, and expand your minds, babies. <laughs> Thank you.
no quiero que me beses ni besarte Ni mirarte ni siquiera oír tu voz Porque supe que tenías otro amante Y en Laredo ya tenías otros dos Te gusta mucho el baile y bailas al compás Te vas hasta Laredo y quieres más y más a correr, te gusta mucho el baile y bailas al compás, te vas hasta Laredo y quieres más y más. Brought to you by RebelRouserHotRods.com Licensed apparel by Sean Starr Including support your local sign painter gear 